We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, El Monte. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, El Monte. The book of Ezra. How many of you here don't know where the book of Ezra is? <laughs> That's okay. Um, it's cool going through the Bible and just allowing the Lord to tell us what to teach. We don't teach topically. We teach through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. That way you get the full counsel of God. Now, the book of Ezra is one of the books that we would call the post-exilic uh, books. And that is in reference to the fact that the Jews had been exiled out of the land. And so now we get the story of what happened afterwards. And, you know... You guys know that a lot of the Bible is the history of the Jews, right? You guys know that early on in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 11 and chapter 12, we begin with the story of Abraham, and then we see the rise and fall of Israel. And so it's cool, you know, 6,000 years ago, the world began. We know that 2,000 years later came Abraham. And then from him came the Jews. A thousand years after him was David. And then when you start looking at the, the nation of Israel, it's so cool. You look at the judges and you look at, you know, first and second Samuel and first and second Kings. And then what ended up happening was in 722 BC, I don't know if you guys like dates or not, but that's when the Assyrians carried the northern kingdom away captive, okay? But one of the things about the Assyrians, what they did is they took the people out of the land of the northern area and they replaced the land with others. Uh, The Assyrians had that practice. And so what ended up happening in that geographical location is a group of people rose up with a mixed uh, ethnicity and a mixed religion, really, and they were called the Samaritans, okay? But the southern kingdom didn't learn from the disobedience of the northern kingdom. And so what ended up happening, and it took three sieges really, but eventually in 586 BC, the Babylonians took the southern kingdom captive. And they carried them away to Babylon. But what they did with the southern kingdom, with the land there, is they just left a few people. They just left the poor and the uneducated. It wasn't a lot of people. And so, in one sense, the southern kingdom, the land, it hadn't been inhabited. It was desolate. It was desolate for 70 years. And so, you know, you look at that, the northern kingdom's gone, the southern kingdom's gone. And from all, you know, appearances, man, Israel's over. I mean, Israel's doomed, Israel's done, Israel's dead, except for the grace of God. And in 70 years, uh, just like the Bible says, and we'll read that in Jeremiah 29, verse 10, God had predicted in 70 years they would return to the land. And we're going to see that now in the book of Ezra. And as you guys are, some of you guys are getting blessed in the, in the men's study, Nehemiah, Esther. All those books are, are in this time period. You have Haggai, you have Zechariah, and then eventually you have the book of Malachi. And so, you know, um, looking at Ezra, um, it's a story of how they would rebuild the temple. And the reason they would rebuild the temple is to worship God. Now, uh, you know, you look at that and you look at it nationally and it's a a really awesome story. But, you know, just as we begin tonight, I want to ask you a question. Do you worship God? Is your life worship? I mean, seriously, man. I mean, even tonight when we were singing, seriously, you know, you got to be honest. You got to you got to shoot straight. Were you worshiping God? You know, I know for some of you here, you were. For others of you here, you weren't. And I just know that because I saw you. No, I'm joking. I wasn't watching you, man. But you know, I mean, it's the bottom line is, you know, you're thinking about all these things, and I don't know, just a. Uh, You know, the person in front of you or who showed up tonight, how many people are here, you know, you're worried maybe about the things going on in your life. No, that's a time to worship. But worship isn't just singing. Worship is your life. 
question, is your life, are you, are we really truly worshiping God? Because if we're not, the book of Ezra is all about getting back to worship. Not religion, not, you know, where the world revolves around me, you know, me, myself, and I, or my conveniences, or my ambitions, or my dreams, or my desires. Nothing really about me. It's all about God. Because worship is about Him. And so when they come back to the land, and we're going to see it, we're just going to start off tonight you know, and they're rebuilding the temple. Remember, they're rebuilding the temple for a purpose. It's not just to have a building. It's to worship. And for some of us here today, and for some of you here today, I believe with all my heart that God is going to send out a message to you that he wants you to return, that he wants you to go back, that he wants you to come back to that first love, to come back to Jerusalem, that you, that we might worship him. And so I, I just pray you guys we would catch the vision of Ezra. Tonight we're going to see in chapter 1 a few words stand out. One is proclamation, uh, two is participation, and then three is uh, provision. Now, the book of Ezra begins with the account of the Jews, again, returning from captivity, primarily to rebuild the temple um, that the Babylonians had destroyed in 586 B.C. And so their return begins in probably around 538 B.C. And as they, you know, kind of gather the people together and they get everything going, it's about a four to five month journey um, by the time they begin to rebuild the temple, it's 536 B.C. Now, we're going to see as we go through the, the book that in chapter 4, there was a 10-year period when the work stopped. It was opposed. It ceased. That was about 530 to 520 B.C. But then the rebuilding resumed under the words of encouragement. And that's when you got to read the prophet Haggai and the prophet Zechariah. It was through their words of encouragement, through their prophecy, that they started rebuilding again. And then in five years, in 515 B.C., the temple was rebuilt. And so, you know, again, against all odds, they not only returned to the land, but they were permitted and encouraged and blessed to rebuild the temple. And so we're going to see the story of Ezra. It's a story of grace, you guys. It's a story of a nation that experiences restoration. You know, and that's true for a nation, and maybe for some of you here, it it needs to come true tonight. It's such a beautiful word, restoration, that God is so gracious to do time and time again. Now, the book of Ezra is named after its writer, Ezra. And it's kind of cool, you guys, because, you know, Again, we know the Lord is the one who does the work, right? But he uses people. You guys know that by now, right? And uh, a lot of times when you read, you know, it could be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, some of these guys, a lot of the books named after them because of, you know, all that they, that they wrote, so to speak, their message. But it's kind of cool when you come across certain books that are named after individuals not just for what they wrote in their message, but a lot of it had to do with what they did. Like Nehemiah, for example, not just what he wrote, but more what he did. Esther, same thing. We don't even know who wrote Esther. We're not sure, but not really what she wrote, what she did. And even though Ezra is a writer and he writes First and Second Chronicles and, and he writes the book of Ezra, Still, I think more of it is, it's named after him because of what he did. And and there's a lesson there, huh? Isn't there? I mean, our life at the end of the day, I mean, praise God for the words that we speak, but the more important message is the life that we live, right? It really is. I mean, what's the difference between a celebrity and a real hero? Just out of curiosity, you know, and I don't know, but a celebrity, you want to know how a lot of times, you know, I don't know how for sure, but a lot of times a celebrity, 
they they become a celebrity because somebody gave them the publicity that they needed. Some publicist, you know, kind of raised them up, and that's how they become a celebrity. But a true hero, I mean, people that we can look at history and say, man, that, that person really made a difference. It's not their name. It has to do with the fiber of their nature. Not just what they said, but but what they did. And so... I think it's kind of cool that the book is named after Ezra, even though when you look at the book, um, he, he doesn't actually appear on the scene until 80 years after the book uh, began in its historical chronology. And he's not even mentioned in the book until chapter 7, verse 1. And it's at that time we're going to see as we go through Ezra that he returns. Uh, it's a second return. And when he comes back at that time, he's called to restore the nation back to God Again, it's crazy, you guys, the way that a lot of times our life is like this, huh? I mean, I wish it wasn't, but a lot of times because of human nature, it is the up and down and all around. But don't be discouraged. Don't, you know, let it, you know, bum you out to the point where you drop out because, you know, a lot of us have heard that saying, the Christian life is really a series of new beginnings, so maybe you're here tonight and you need a new beginning. I praise, praise God that God is able to meet you there and to provide that for you, to fill you with the Holy Spirit, to flood you with his love, to do something that he wants to do like, like he did through Ezra, like he did through Nehemiah, like he did through Esther, like he did through Martin Luther, like he did through the, the church fathers. And you see, and you go throughout history, and you can name people that were real people of God. And, and maybe that's you. And we're going to see as we go through our study tonight that God's going to call us to rise up uh, to the occasion. And so Ezra, he's a, he's a godly man. Again, like I said, a lot of people believe he wrote First and Second Chronicles. Um, he wrote the book of Ezra. His name, it means help. It means help. Anyone here need help tonight? <laughs> a lot of our prayers are like, help us, Lord, help us, Lord, help us, Lord. And I'm just listening to people pray sometimes. I'm like, that's a good word, man. We just need help. And boy, did God help him to help the people of God. A lot of times that's just got to be our prayer. Lord, help me to help them because we need you, Lord. That's his name. You know, and, and real quick, if you go over to chapter 7, in, in verse 11, you get a little information on Ezra. It says that this is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra, the priest, the scribe, expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. And so you look at this passage and you see that Ezra was a priest, he was a scribe, and that means that he was an expert in the law, right? And when you look at him, you see not only that, but in chapter 7, or you read verses 1 through 5, and what you have is a genealogy there. And Ezra traces his genealogy back not only to the, the Levitical priesthood, but to the Aaronic priesthood. He's a descendant, actually, of the high priest, the chief priest, Aaron. And so, a real, real cool guy, reading his book, I tell you what, he's a solid source of spiritual information, right? You know, one thing you'll notice about Ezra is that he emphasized in Chronicles and in Ezra, and you'll even see him appear sporadically in Nehemiah, uh, their contemporaries, he emphasizes the importance of the temple, and how important the temple was for the Jews, and through his priestly perspective, he, he points that out. And it's important for us, you guys, because remember, we're getting to the, to the end of the Old Testament, and uh, there's an emphasis on the temple. Okay, question. Do the Jews have a temple today? They don't, right? They don't. Um, but um, they're getting ready to rebuild it. You guys know that's all part of prophecy, right? How the Antichrist will come into the temple, the Bible says, and Second Thessalonians chapter 3, he's going to say that he's God, and what you find is that um, the Jews are getting ready to rebuild the temple. It's crazy. 
when we were in Israel, we went to the Temple Institute, and this is of Jewish, Jewish origin, and they have everything ready except for the temple itself. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw on the news, uh, but I saw the news yesterday. There's a story of a sacrifice that took place in Israel and made the news. They literally killed the animal. It was kind of crazy. And uh, they, they justified the, the, the sacrifice by saying that we're able to see the exact location of where the temple will be rebuilt, the, the temple mount, and so they show it on, on, on the news uh, as far as the sacrifice goes. And so, you know, you're, you're seeing the, the emphasis, the importance of the temple. Now to the Jews, uh, they think they need to rebuild it. But let me ask you a question. Do, what about for us as Christians? Do we have a temple? What's the temple? Us, huh? God lives in us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, personally, God lives in you. You are the temple of God, right? But not only that, you guys got to know this also. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says that God lives in the temple congregationally. And so there's, a, there's, an, there's an element where as we get together as Christians, as we gather together, there's like a temple. There's a special manifest presence of God. As a congregation, when we get together, 1 Corinthians 3, that's the temple, but also us personally, we take that temple with us wherever we go. And so what we need to do is we need to worship. We need to worship God when we come together as a congregation, congregationally, and we need to worship God throughout our life personally, you see? And so, in, in looking at the importance of the temple and Ezra and worship, it's such a cool thing uh, to be able to see together. And so let's begin reading in verse 1, in verses 1 through 4, we have the proclamation. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And so here we have the proclamation. Uh, it's in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord, it comes. At the word of the Lord, it says in there in verse 1, by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Okay, so this was a prophecy. You go back to Jeremiah. There's a few references to it, but the one that's really clear is in Jeremiah 29, verse 10. It says, For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, God said, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. Okay, so that was a prophecy uh, of Jeremiah. If you guys remember reading the book of Daniel, he happened to be reading the scroll of Jeremiah and he saw that this was about to take place. So he began just to pray Bible, right? And that's after 70 years of being, you know, disciplined, so to speak, where they were taken out of the land. Now, something that's rather interesting, you guys, here's the, the, the countdown. You're wondering, well, when did the 70 years begin? If you begin the countdown at the first Babylonian invasion of Judah, that's right around 606, 605 B.C., then that takes you to 5. 36 or 535 BC, which is exactly when they arrived back in Jerusalem. And so a lot of Bible scholars believe that the countdown begins from the first 
Babylonian uh, invasion. But if you begin the countdown in 586 B.C., that takes you to 516, 515 B.C., which is interesting. That's when they destroyed the temple. But 70 years later, in 515 B.C., they rebuilt the temple. And I look at both of those, and I think, wow, Lord, that's cool. I mean, you kind of did it in both ways. The first time the Babylonians uh, invaded Judah, they took out the leaders. The second time, they took out about, uh, there was a few thousand people. The third time, they took out, I mean, everybody, man. And so anyways, when you, when you look at that, it's just, it's just crazy to me when you study Bible prophecy and you realize that the 70-year period prediction was spot on. You know, if you study history, you'll notice that the Assyrians and the Babylonians, uh, they were pretty bad. They were cruel. They were inhumane. And they would displace people from the land. It would be like a mass scattering and deportation, right? But the policy of the Persians, uh, Cyrus was king of Persia, um, they happened to conquer Babylon in 539 B.C., and they were exactly the opposite. They actually would, what they would call, they would repatriate the people who had been scattered back into the land. And so we see the prophecy of Jeremiah came to pass. You know, but something that's interesting, you guys, it's not just the prophecy of Jeremiah, it's also the prophecy of Isaiah. You know, Isaiah actually calls Cyrus by name in there in verse 1, uh, before he was ever born. Did you guys know that? 162 years before it ever happened. Watch, keep a marker here in Ezra and go over to the book of Isaiah, if you would. Chapter 44. And chapter 44 is, uh, is talking about how all the idols are, are nothing. I mean, they're nothing. They don't talk. They don't do anything, man. They're just, they're just pagan, dead idols. But he says, I am the living God. Right, and so he's trying to give like a contrast between him and the all the idols that are that aren't even alive, right? And so we begin reading here in Isaiah forty-four and verse twenty-four. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and He who formed you from the womb. That's kind of cool, huh? How God uh, uh, made you in the womb, and you sometimes you get mad because you're not tall enough, and. Like, God, it's all your fault. Sometimes I wonder, Lord, why did I get gray hair so early? And the Lord knows, right? right anyways, he, he formed us from the womb. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone. I mean, no one helped him. He did it by himself. He spoke it into existence, right? He spreads abroad the earth by myself. He's just talking about who he is, who frustrates the signs of the babblers and and drivers, diviners, mad, who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness. Notice verse 26, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. To the cities of Judah, you shall be built. And I will raise up her waste places. Who says to the deep, be dry, and, and I will dry up your, your rivers. And that might be in reference to the parting of the Red Sea, parting of the Jordan. I mean, just basically how God is able to do anything, right? But th- look what he says next in verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure. Saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. You see, here's God. When's Isaiah written? 700 years before Christ. Here's God. I mean, before Cyrus is even born, here's God saying, I'm going to call you by name. Some homeboy later is going to be born named Cyrus, and he's going to do what I predetermined for him to do. It's not just a prophecy, it's sovereignty. I mean, Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. The temple foundation is going to be laid. And you're like, well, wait a minute, Isaiah. I mean, the temple's already around when Isaiah's writing. But see, Isaiah had even predicted in chapter 6 and chapter 11 that the Jews would be wiped out, that they would be judged. 
Now he predicts that the day would come, that they would return, and he calls the leader by name. He says in verse 1 of 45, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors, so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you though you have not known me. And you want to know something? If you were to read just the Bible and if you were to read the book of Ezra, you would think that Cyrus knows the Lord. Watch if you go back to Ezra. You know, I mean, when you read chapter 2 and chapter 3, you know, I mean, chapter 1 and verse 2 and 3, and, you know, it looks like Cyrus knows the Lord, but but he doesn't. How do we know he doesn't? Well, number one, because Isaiah 44 and 45 says he doesn't. And number two, because of history and because of archaeology. And because when you study the Persian kingdom, and even they have found cylinders of Cyrus, And what we find is that in those days, the kings would actually send people back to their lands and they would tell them to pray to their gods that they would be established. It's really interesting when you look at Cyrus' concern. Uh, One uh, commentator put it this way, Cyrus' concern was to establish strong buffer states around his empire, which would be loyal to him. Also, by having his subject peoples resettled in their own countries, he hoped to have the gods in various parts of his empire praying for him to his gods, Bel and Nebo. If you look it up online, the famous Cyrus Cylinder records his capture of Babylon and his program of repatriating his subject peoples in their homelands. And includes this statement. You can read this. It says, May all the gods whom I have resettled in their sacred cities daily ask Bel and Nebo for a long life for me. And so it's really fascinating when you put it all together how Isaiah's prophecy came true to the T. And and you, you look at Ezra and you're like, wow, what a, an amazing thing. How, how the Lord started stirring things up and and it's this fulfillment of Jeremiah 29 and Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 45. And and what we find, and there's so much that we could focus on here, how our God is the living God, how there's no other God like Him. But, um, you know, we could also look at this and see that, you know, Donald Trump, he ain't in control. <laughs> you know, I don't know who's going to get the nomination. It's either Hillary or Trump, probably, huh? Unless you start praying, man. <laughs> you know, I don't know what's going to happen, but a lot of people, they're pulling their hairs out, and they're freaking out, and they're like, man, what's going to happen? And they're like chicken little, running around like the sky's falling. And and then that, and then I look at this, and I say, hey, they ain't, they ain't in control. Yeah, they're the ruler, but my God's the overruler. You know, they, they might be a king, but my God's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. You know, the problem with the church, one of the problem with the church is they're looking at the, at the president of the United States or they're looking at the governor of their state or the mayor of their city to save the world. That's not their job. That's the church's job. And don't get me wrong. Yeah, of course, we like to have godly Christian leaders in those offices. But, you know, the Bible says to pray for them um, because of the decisions that they make. And that as they make their decisions, that we would have the freedom to worship. You guys, the responsibility for whatever it is, you know, uh, heterosexual marriage or, you know, having people go in the right bathroom, the boys and the girls. I mean, yeah, let's do our politics and let's vote. 
But seriously, is that where your confidence is? Is that going to save our country? Is that going to protect our children? The laws of man? No, it'll be the church pushing, praying, living the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, so you look at this and, you know, you're realizing, well, see, I mean, they're not in control. Uh, Augustus Caesar wasn't in control and Jesus was born in Bethlehem. I mean, you know, Herod wasn't in control. He tried to kill Jesus. He couldn't kill Jesus. Herod Agrippa II, I mean, he, he wasn't in control. God killed him when he was too prideful. I mean, you look at all the, the, leader, the leaders of the land, Ahasuerus in the book of Esther. He wasn't in control. God raised up Esther, and God, you know, like many wives, he turned the head by moving the neck. You know, that's how God does it sometimes, you know. I mean, the Lord is in control, you guys. Second Chronicles 26, it says, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand, is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? And so here we see God uses Cyrus. God stirs up Cyrus. God moved the heart of Cyrus in order to make this proclamation for the rebuilding of the temple. We see that there in verse 2. And then in verse 3, Cyrus encourages any and all of the Jews to return to Jerusalem And then in verse 4, Cyrus encourages the people that don't go to contribute financially, you know, with silver or gold or goods or even livestock for the house of God to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And so we see the proclamation. Next, we see the participation in verse 5. It says, And then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all whose spirits... God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things besides all that was willingly offered. You know, when you go to Israel... And you just, man, you just listen to the the guides. They'll tell you all about the way that the Jews have been called back to their land. And the proclamation, it went out. It, It went out. You know, hey, come back to Israel and we'll hook you up, man. We'll get you a house and you can have an education for free. We'll take care of it. We'll give you a job. I mean, to me, it's a trip because it's like the same thing we're reading in the Bible, how there was this call for the people to go back to the land, right? That's a proclamation. But, but, but how many people will go back? You know, there's the participation, and that's the question. There's the call of God, and then there's the answer to the call, Right? And as we read our text here, we read those cool words there in verse 5 about the, the people. It says, with all whose spirits God had moved. And so they, they rise to go up. You know, it's kind of cool the way that we see the Lord is doing all this. How he stirs up the spirit of Cyrus. Now he stirs up the spirits of these people to go and rise up and to move to Jerusalem to move to Judea you know and you guys whenever God wants to do something man it always starts with him I think of that passage in Philippians 2 13 it says for it is God who works in you in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure and so you're here tonight and you're like man I want to be a missionary God put that there you're here tonight you're like I want to teach the Bible God put that there You're here tonight and you say, I would love to be a a pastor. God put that there. I want to go to Israel. Well, God put that there. I think it was the Lord, you know. I mean, what's so cool how he stirs up our heart, right? It always begins there. Now, now you might read that and, and say, well, then the people had nothing to do with it then. It was totally the Lord. It says, with all whose spirits God had moved, they rose and and went up and and they, they didn't choose to go. It was God that chose them to go. And, 
And and you got to be careful with that too, though, because um, they were stirred up by God, and this whole thing is a work of God. I think what Ezra is trying to do is to make sure that he gives credit and glory to God, that this is a work of God. And so that has to come out crystal clear. But whatever you do, don't forget the responsibility of man. There's a there's a combination here of divine inspiration and and personal volition. We call that choice. God wants to save people. God wants to encourage people. God wants to do a great work. And there's a call that goes out. But how many people really answer that call? You're like, Lord, I would like to, but I'm kind of busy right now. Yeah, what are you doing? Well, you know, Lord, I got to wash my car. Thursday's my laundry day. And, uh, you know, Friday, you know, I got to, you know, take the kids here and there and whatever. I think Shark Tank is on at the 9 o'clock, Lord. So maybe, maybe at 10. But then again, there's Venta Venta. So I don't know if uh, I can do that. I mean, you know, maybe we got so many excuses of our life. And God is saying, I just want somebody who will serve me. And that's what's going on here. There's an opportunity. There's a proclamation. But, you know, you wonder what the participation will be. Now, I read to you earlier, it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. But if you go back one verse in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You have a responsibility too. You got to work out what God has worked in. And you have to do it in the fear of God. You know, and how are we doing? How are we doing in worship? How are we doing in, in service and in ministry and in sharing the gospel? Whatever, exercising our gifts. You know, we're going to see in chapter 2 of Ezra that uh, about 50,000 people answered the call. Um, you know, and that you may think is a lot, but it's not a lot when you think of how many Jews there really were. Um, and But isn't that the, the testimony huh, of the church? That it's a relatively small amount of people that, that really, truly participate, that really are willing to make that step of faith. Kind of like Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, verse 2, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. He says, therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so when you look at this, um, I, I, th I think in verse 5, I see uh, one word kind of stands out to me. I'm weird. Let me just say this to you. Participant, participant stands out. In verse 6, the word encouragement stands out. It says, "On all those who are around them encouraged them. Yeah, you know, not everybody can go. Not everybody's called. But we all have a, a part to play. Uh, for example, you might not be called to the job of a leader. But you might be called to help a leader do a better job. You know, whatever it might be, you know, you might not be able to go, but you might be able to give. Okay, we got the Mexico missions trip coming up, you know, and you can't go for whatever reason. But, you know, God's blessed you financially. And, you know, a lot of times people come up and they say, hey, I would like to sponsor someone. Maybe a young person doesn't have any money, change their life. God work in them. God work through them. Here's a hundred bucks. Send somebody. Or maybe you're super blessed and you can send somebody to Cambodia. That, that happens sometimes. But, you know, God has to lead. But when that happens, when that happens, I tell you what, it encourages. It encourages. And that's what they did in verse 6. All those who are around them encouraged them. How? With articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with precious things. Besides all that was willingly offered and so you have the participant you have that word encouragement but then the third word is the is the word dormant and and that's all the others that's all the others they, they didn't want to go 
They didn't want to give. They were just chillaxing, man. Right? And there's a lot of people like that in the church. They're dead, kind of. They're dormant, kind of. We read about the, the church of Sardis the other night, and it's a dead church. And you know, I don't even know if you should call it the church. I mean, when you think of the word dormant, what do you think of? The word, it speaks of uh, uh, someone whose normal functions are suspended or slowed down for a period of time, as if they're in a deep sleep. It speaks of a, of a, of a, of a plan alive, of a plant alive, but it's not growing. Not, not actively growing. It speaks of a, a volcano temporarily inactive. You know, and I think, and I just know, there's a lot of Christians like that. They're dormant. They're not, you know, the encouragement, the givers, and they're not the participant, the goers. And they're still, for whatever reason, focused on themselves. They're trying to figure themselves out. Why are you trying to figure yourself out? Just look up. <laughs> look to God. You don't, have to, you don't have to find yourself. You just got to find the Lord. And you go and you take steps of faith and you give and you pray and you watch what God does. Look what it says there in verse 5. With all whose spirits God had moved, arose. I like that word, arose, to go up. And build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. You know, we need people to rise up. Um, you know, they needed people then. We need people now. Uh, it's always that way. We need people to rise up. You know, a lot of times I'll be in class. I'm teaching a Bible college class. And I'm trying to get people to participate, man. And for whatever reason, they're just not willing to say anything. Well, come on, don't you want to learn? This is a dialogue here. This is participation. This is our opportunity in the classroom. You know, and it's so cool when you see a, a student who's excited and wants to participate, you know, but a lot of times they don't. They just sit there, they come, they go, they come, they go, they come, they go, and that's it. And God is saying, it's time for you to, you know, rise up, raise your hand, ask questions, do something, you know. I mean, even when you get to the book of Nehemiah, you're going to see in chapter 2, verse 18, Nehemiah said, I told him in the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. You know, get up out of your seat and start doing something. Rise up, right? Luke 5, 27 through 28, it says, after these things, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting there at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Maybe God's calling you to leave something. A lot of times that's what's getting in the way. You can't really hold on to the Lord because you're holding on to something else, and God is saying, let go of that and follow me. You know, we got to rise up. Don't let the devil keep you down. You know, I like what happened to Paul the Apostle. It says in Acts 14, 19 through 20, Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium, they came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up. There it is again. And he went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And so the devil thought, that they were done, right? I mean, the devil thought that, you know, he had gotten Paul, but um, the guys, they gathered around. Maybe you're here tonight and the devil thinks he has you. You know, stoned, left for dead outside the city. He's kind of like, oh, that's over with. But then for whatever reason, I, you may not even know it, you came tonight. You're like, I didn't really feel like going. Like if I took a survey of here, how many of you didn't feel like coming tonight? You would probably 90% raise your hands, right? But you know, you ended up here, and then God is just saying, it's not over with you. I mean, not only are you going to be in right relationship with me, God says, but I will use your life to the uttermost, to the guttermost. I will use you to change the world, to save 
the world. Because somewhere in here, the Holy Spirit is moving in somebody's heart. Somebody's heart who the devil thought they were down and done and dead. But the Holy Spirit is moving to do something so supernatural because Paul was dead. He was caught up to the third heaven. You read 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But God brought him back to life. You know, we got to rise up. Here they rose up to return, to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. You know, and that wasn't an easy thing. I mean, some people, they don't, I don't want to go to Cambodia. That's like a 14-hour plane drive or plane ride, right? It's funny. Why would somebody say something like that? Try taking a, a trip for, that takes four to five months, man. Going from down here in Persia into that fertile crescent and all the way up and down into that's not an easy that's not an easy journey. But that's what they did. They volunteered for it. And it was dangerous and it was tough. You know, one thing about the Jews, and I think it's God's grace and hand upon them, is that wherever they, they win or wherever they go, it seems like they prosper. And so, you know, they're in Babylon, and after 70 years, they acclimated to that place and level of living, and they're kind of comfortable there in Babylon and the world. You know, uh, little by little, that can happen, right? The proverbial frog who's put in the water. If you put the frog in the, in the boiling water, he immediately, you know, hops out. But if you put him in, in water that's kind of cool, he'll kick it there in the, in the pot, and then you just start turning up the heat just a little bit, you know what a frog will do when it starts uh, warming up a little bit? He actually starts swimming around. Okay, But when the water begins to boil, by that time he loses his strength to hop out. And that's a lot of times how people get caught up in the world. you know. And, and what we see right here is some of them wanted to go back. Some of them didn't. They were happy in Babylon even though they, they didn't belong there. And so um, what ends up happening in verse 7, we'll close with this. It says, And King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. That's probably Zerubbabel. And said, this is the number of them, 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Shesh Bazaar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. And in the end, we, we see, um, man, just everything restored. You know, the, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken all these articles away, I mean, to the minutest detail, everything was restored. And in our life, that's what God can do. And you look at the story of Job, and you see how everything was stripped away. But then you see God's grace and God's faithfulness and everything was restored. You look at your life and you might look back and you might see the loss and maybe even the loss of years and you're like, man, it's been, I've wasted whatever, 14 years of my life. I haven't been serving the Lord. And, and you know, that can actually, you know, hold you, hold you down. And God is saying, don't worry, I will restore to you Everything that the crawling locust has eaten, I'll restore to you. I tell you this, you guys, that, not that we go and we get a testimony or whatever. We don't do that on purpose. But God is such a good God that he will bring every, he will restore to us the things that the enemy had taken away. You know, even when everyone else may have believed the lie that there was no hope, that their story was over, that they were down, done, and dead, God knew that wasn't true. And what did he do? He stirred up men, and they rose up and obeyed, and God would then guide and provide, even restoring the very vessels 
that had been taken away. And that's what he does with the gold and the silver and everything they need. You guys know that uh, principle, right? Where God guides, God provides, right? And that's exactly what he did there. And so you guys, in reading this, this is not just for them. Then, I really believe with all my heart, this is for us now. Time to rebuild the temple. And so you're here today and you're saying, Manny, that's hard. That's hard, right? Well, praise God that it's hard. I got to rebuild my marriage. Praise God that, that you have that in your heart, that you want to do that. Or the ministry or some type of relationship that needs to be you know, rebuilt. Or I don't know, just a, a life of surrender. Maybe you got to break some change that you fall into some type of bondage, man. I praise God. Maybe he wants you to do something that's just totally crazy in man's eyes. But, you know, you look at yourself and you're like, well, I can't do it. But, but with God, you can, right? Like what Oswald Chambers said. He said, thank God he gives us difficult things to do. Now, you might think, Lord, why do you give me difficult things to do? You know, and some people might complain. But I thank God because you want to know what happens when he, when he challenges you to do something that is beyond you. Is he's going he's gonna to call you to grow. He's going to call you to get to know him deeply and more than you ever have. You see, and that's, and that's where we are right now, you guys. That's what God wants to do in us and through us. My prayer is that we would respond to his amazing grace uh, that would bring us back, that is willing to bring us back to a place of true worship of God. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626 454-3414. Remember that Jesus loves you.